Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is Raise Your Average. Adam Butler from Resolve Asset Management is here with me today. Adam, how you doing? Fantastic. Thank you, Pierre. Awesome. How you doing? Awesome. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. We're honored to have and to welcome Michael Robbins, a distinguished figure in the world of quantitative asset management. Michael is an acclaimed author and thought leader who brings a wealth of knowledge and experience in quantitative trading, asset management, and financial modeling. In addition to being a sitting CIO and having previously overseen over a trillion rent in AUM, Michael is a professor of graduate studies at Columbia University in New York, teaching 11 courses, including global tactical asset allocation and factor investing in asset allocation. His recently published book, Quantitative Asset Management, is a game changer in the industry, offering deep insights into the complexities and nuances of quantitative strategies and backtesting. For advisors, the insights he shares offer to bridge the wide knowledge gap that exists between allocators and those who possess the deep technical knowledge of quantitative asset management. While the music's playing, please hit that subscribe button, like and share this and other episodes, and leave us your comments. That helps others like you find us. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Michael, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Michael, to get things started, please... Tell us the, uh, the story, the arc of your career, how you got into systematic investment management, into the quantitative investment management space, and your, your experiences along the way and how that helped to set you up for your current uh, activities and the writing of your, the publishing of your book. Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting story. A lot of people have followed my path, but to the people who haven't, it seems a little odd. I was a, a nuclear physicist back when computers were just starting to be used on the front, in the front office. And Wall Street hired nuclear physicists to program them. Uh, it wasn't necessary, but I think it sounded really fun for them to say they had a physicist on the desk instead of a high school math teacher who could have done the job just fine. And that's kind of how I got into the business. It was lucky. And it was also lucky that since it was a new thing, I was able to invest in all different kinds of asset classes, which is unusual on Wall Street because people really like to specialize and become just the expert in a particular type of investing. And as time went on, computers obviously became essential to everything. I mean, who doesn't use a spreadsheet? So even the fundamental investors use spreadsheets. And it always appealed to me uh, to be able to test my theories and to do things like back tests. You know, they're not a perfect solution, but to me, they were a lot better than always wondering if I was in the right frame of mind when I made my decision. Having a process and being able to test my assumptions uh, is really comforting to me. So uh, I managed as much as $100 billion, but usually I manage a lot less. When I'm a CIO for a, an investment advisor, the clients may have many, many times less, maybe a few million, maybe a hundred million. And these ideas apply equally as well to them 
as the institutions. They're just not necessarily in the right frame of mind to understand them without explanation. And that's kind of why I felt the need to write the book is to make that explanation maybe a little clearer or, or at least have some pretty pictures to point at when I explain it to people. You know, we've, um, we've often made the case that small investors have a slightly different problem to solve than very large investors because they do benefit from having portfolio agility. They can, you know, when they're making trades, they're probably not moving the market very much. The market's not really feeling them coming or going. And they've got mandate flexibility. You know, if they're, they learn something new or if their utility function changes because they just had a child or they came into a windfall or had something negative happen with their career, they can pretty quickly shift gears and, and change their approach, right? So I'm, I'm wondering, since you actually have managed money for very large institution in the sort of $100 billion range, would you, would you say that a good toolbox and understanding of quantitative methods and a, and a broad understanding of all of the available investment strategies um, may actually be even more useful for somebody with a, with a slightly smaller portfolio than you know, many of the large pensions and sovereign wealth funds, for example, because let's face it, you know, they have more options on how they can deploy their money? Well, yes and no. Uh, you make some very good points. And I think where you're right is that smaller investors have the opportunity to invest in things that bigger investors can't, kind of oxymoronically. There are some things that big investors can do that small ones can't, like doing private deals and club deals. When it comes to, say, trading in microcap stocks and pink sheets and things like that, uh, a large investor just can't put enough money to work, and those strategies don't make sense for them. Uh, there are also oftentimes uh, political hurdles and uh, institutional inflexibilities in large uh, organizations, whereas a small investor could do whatever he wants. Uh, but in the same way, maybe in the opposite way, it's even more important for small investors to follow some sort of system, some sort of discipline because when they have this big candy shop in front of them, uh, there's a big temptation to just switch all the time. Oh, I've heard a new thing, let me try that. I've heard something else, let me try that. Uh, I wish I remember the name of the bank, but I, I read that a, uh, an Israeli bank changed their reporting frequency for their clients and only gave their investment performance every six months instead of monthly. And their clients' performance improved because they were less likely to try to game the market. And uh, there's also a, uh, one of my favorite papers. I think it's called Selling Fast and Buying Slow, uh, a play on words uh, after the, uh, the Kahneman book. And um, it, it was a very right. informative study that I've talked to a lot of people about, and they all seem to agree with the study that even when professional money managers want to sell some assets to raise money so that they can buy something new, they're a lot more haphazard about selling what they're holding than they are about deciding what the next new thing is to buy. And uh, the point of the paper was that if they only thought as much about selling as they did about buying, they could make a lot more money. And uh, that's kind of the same concept when you're uh, a smaller investor and you discover something new and it's a really compelling idea, you have to be that much more careful about it. Yeah, I think the idea was that um as a small investor, you can 
Um, you could source liquidity very easily, and that opens up a wide variety of uh, different uncorrelated strategies where as if you're, if you're allocating $100 billion, the vast majority of your returns are going to come from some form of very liquid beta exposure, right? And um, you know, if, if you're lucky, you have access to very large infrastructure deals or other types of, of deals that may um, have cash flows that are less related to the economic cycle or to, uh, to duration risk, for example. Um, whereas, you know, obviously, if you're a small retail investor, you've got all manner of different kinds of long, short factor strategies that you can employ. You can um, employ a meaningful amount of those strategies. They're going to actually make a difference to the overall return profile of your portfolio. Um, you can employ, I mean, you, you obviously teach global tactical asset allocation. You can employ GTAA from a liquid liquidity standpoint. There's some discussion about whether for most people doing it on their own, that is a useful approach. <laughs> Actually, maybe that's a good sort of segue to that. You know, we've, <clears throat> we've spent a very long time investigating that very thing, but um, it's a very long journey and there's lots of mistakes to make along the way. So maybe let's start with sort of um, global tactical asset allocation. What is it, first of all? And um, what are some effective ways to approach it? And, and what are some... Uh, potholes that it would be awfully nice to sidestep along the way if you did want to pursue that kind of approach. Yeah, it is tricky and it's very compelling. It's uh, people who have never tried it before, when they hear about it, it sounds amazing. It sounds like that's just the way I want to do things. It's basically, I think what most people envision professional investing to be about, whether or not that's true, that you come up with these ideas about uh, global macroeconomic themes like the war in the Middle East and figure out what that means for investing, what kind of cycle we're in, what investments should do well or worse when that happens, and then temporarily get involved in those investments or get out of those investments uh, while following a longer term path, a, a strategic path. Uh, you take a tactical shift to take advantage of shorter term things. Uh, it is very difficult to do, but it's also uh, like trying to predict the weather, a necessity, right? You can't just ignore what's going on in the world. It's very difficult for anyone, even an institutional investor, to say, oh, yeah, sure, there's a war going on in the Middle East and Ukraine, but I'm thinking long term, I'm not going to consider those things. I'm not going to worry about the price of oil, right? But um, actually predicting any of those is is a lot harder than it seems. I think one of the most useful things to try to predict is not so much what's going to do well, but where the risk is. So risk is a lot easier to guess at than return. For instance, when Brexit happened, I think very few people thought the vote would turn out the way it was, but everybody knew the vote was going to happen and that some big event may result in the vote. Uh, the same thing I think is true now with uh, the possible escalation of wars and, and all the things going on in the world. It's not too hard to identify the risk. Figuring out what possible future may come from that is, is a different story. So uh, kind of tying into what you were mentioning uh, a few minutes ago, Adam, um, it's important to identify the contribution due to the risk. Is the risk you're taking 
rewarded in any way. So a lot of people think they have a really new good idea and they want to pile some money in there, not realizing that this beta or this duration uh, that they're not putting a lot of money in uh, produces so little risk compared to their idea that by putting, say, 10 or 20% of their money in oil, right, they're actually using up 90% of their risk budget. And the 80% that's in index funds or what have you is actually like almost nothing at all. And they could put a very small percentage in these risky bets and be much more diversified and well off, but they don't go through the calculation. They don't realize how much risk is really in these trades that excite them and how little is in the ones that they really should be putting most of their money in. Yeah, diversification is something that <laughs> I find that, that um, it's just hard to conceptualize and um, internalize. And, um, you know, I think the, the priority should almost always be on diversification. And if you're going to deviate from a well-diversified portfolio, then the, the burden of proof is on the deviation, right? So how do you, and, and the other thing to acknowledge here too, is that it's not sufficient for you to identify that risk is higher because there's a war or because there's an election, for example, but you have to identify that risk is, your expected value of risk is different than what the market is already pricing, right? So, you know, you've got the market trying to, pr or to hedge a lot of these risks. They're buying hedges in the form of options or potentially complex strategies um, to hedge very specific risks. If you are then also taking steps to hedge those risks, you actually may be overcorrecting. And when the risk then is in the rearview mirror, the market then reverts back to its original state. And that, that takes a lot of people off guard. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. It, it always surprises me, and I guess it shouldn't, that a lot of people don't understand what you just said, that the market is adaptive and it expects, right? So you don't have to be smarter than what's going on. You have to be smarter than all the other people who are thinking just like you. And you have to be smarter than the price that's priced in, not the price that's there now, right? So for instance, uh, in terms of oil, you might say, oh, well, oil is low. Obviously, it's going to go up if there's a war. Yeah, but is it going to go up more than everybody else thinks it's going to go up? Because that's already priced in. Going up is already priced in, right? So yeah, that, that's an important concept. Uh, another concept that you mentioned that's very important is also um, you know, the different actors that price those things in. So there, there's an interesting theory that broader assets like an index fund are harder to price the risk into because there are so many different people involved in trading that thing. So if you're trading something very specific, you know, like uh, the crack spread, you know, some very specific arbitrage or a very specific trade, then there are professionals doing that trade and they're all pretty much doing it for the same reason. And so the, the price of risk is very clear and uh, it should be, as they say, price to perfection. But when you're buying something like the S&P 500, there are so many different people buying it for different reasons. Indices that have to rebalance, uh, pension funds that have flows, insurance funds, all these different people that are pricing in their own risk, which may be different from yours. And then it might actually be possible if you're smart enough to 
pricing your risk better than these other people are pricing in your risk. They can be pricing in their risk better, but their risk doesn't apply to you. Your time frame may be a month, their time frame may be 20 years. The price might be right for 20 years and wrong for a month. And so thinking about expectations and adaptations uh, really is the key to doing it. And being smarter than everyone else is also very important and very hard to do, which is why, as you mentioned, diversification is so important because at least that way, you don't have to be smarter than everybody else. Michael, in your experience, what are what are some of the most critical yet often overlooked decisions that need to be made when you're developing a quantitative model? And how do these decisions impact the overall effectiveness of the model? So I think there are a lot of things that people do wrong when they do quantitative modeling. And to be clear, it's still better than maybe not doing it quantitatively, because at least you're trying to get the thing right. And you have a process of trying to find out what's right. But at the same time, it's very easy to delude yourself or to test the wrong things. So for instance, if you're doing a stress test on your portfolio, you pick a certain period of time that you think is relevant for the stress test. Well, your own thoughts are influencing what time you're picking to do that test. And that itself can bias you, right? Uh, all the decisions that you make, and there are many decisions you make even in a very strict mathematical algorithmic way of thinking, uh, they're all biased in some ways and you have to challenge them. Uh, but I don't want to get carried away with it and make it seem like, say, backtesting is so fraught with error. Uh, like the, the story of the difference between testing a statistical theory and machine learning, I think, is, is pretty relevant. So statistical theories have tests, too, right? There, there's p-values and, and all different ways to test statistics to see if they're right. And then people talk about machine learning overfitting. Well... Machine learning has all sorts of tests built into it too, right? There's cross-validation. There's all sorts of ways to try to avoid overfitting. Many more ways, in fact, than there are in statistics. So even though it's easy to overfit when you use machine learning just because the tools are so powerful, it doesn't mean that the tools are bad. They're, in fact, a lot better than the tools we had before. But you still have to be careful with it. Right? So, and I think the same thing is true with uh, doing quantitative analysis. There are a lot of mistakes that can be made. I try to just give tons and tons of them in the book and in my course. I see the same mistakes all the time. Um, but that doesn't mean it's something you shouldn't try or something that's bad. It's you should just be aware that whatever proof you have is not certain proof. It's just one part of a mosaic one hint to whether it works or not. And you have to be very careful and vigilant to make sure that if you did it wrong, you notice before it's too late. Uh, when I was the chief risk officer for a state pension system, uh, that was right after the financial crisis. And we visited an, an amazing hedge fund. Uh, you know, Nobody could uh, criticize them for being anything but wonderful. But at the same time, they lost a lot of money. They had a quantitative strategy. It was losing money. And the way they thought about it was we have a system. The system makes sense. If things are getting cheaper, then they're an even better buy. And yeah, if your system's right, but you still have to entertain the idea that, well, maybe it's not right. 
and maybe we should question it and pull back a little bit instead of doubling down. And that's the way you have to think with any quantitative strategy. Be wary about the things that you don't know about and think that even if you thought you tested everything, there's always things you didn't test and things you don't know. And uh, as Shakespeare said, things that aren't part of your philosophy. Michael, can you, def can you just uh, define overfitting, first of all, in the machine learning that you discussed? And what, what are some of the what are some examples of outcomes, of bad outcomes that can come as a result of overfitting a machine learning model? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. For those that don't know, uh, overfitting is a pretty simple concept that just sounds really complicated. In fact, most of the more well-known machine learning methods are pretty simple in concept. Uh, they're ingenious, and uh, some of them are complex when they're built into computer programs, but the ideas are often very simple to explain. Uh, for instance, uh, two of the main types of uh, machine learning methods are regression and classification. Regression is very similar to the concept we all learned when we were kids, where you might have dots on a graph and you draw a line that best fits those dots. Now, if you imagine that line as something that doesn't have to be straight and it can be curved, the more curvy it gets, the more likely it is to touch as many dots as possible. In fact, in uh, the ultimate sense, it could be so curvy that it connects all the dots, uh, like a kid's coloring book. When you try to fit all the dots, you ignore the okay. idea that there might be some uh, more general theory that's more important than connecting all the dots. Maybe what you're trying to fit really is a line, and fitting all the dots isn't as important as finding a line that fits most of the dots, right? If you just touch all the dots, you come up with a nonsense squiggle, not a relationship that you can make sense of, right? For instance, if you want to find the beta of a market, you need a line to get the slope of that beta, right? If you have a crazy squiggly line, there's, there's no slope. The same thing here, when your model touches too many dots to the point where your theory doesn't make any sense, that's overfitted, right? So there's a, a concept that's the, the trade-off between bias and variance. Bias is a model that is so strict that it ignores the data. Maybe you're trying to draw a straight line, but the data doesn't belong in a straight line. It should be some type of curve. Variance is making your line too flexible so that it touches all the data and there's no theory that you can draw a conclusion from. So overfitting is having too much variance and not enough bias. No theory and all connecting the dots. So if you have a program or a machine learning algorithm that just gets all the data fitted to the model and it says I have 100% accuracy using past data, because it doesn't use a model, because it doesn't use a theory of the future, it's not able to predict. If you have a line that connects all the dots, how are you going to predict where right. the next dot's going to be? It could be anywhere. If you have a straight line that fits all the dots, you know the next prediction's on that straight line. But the trick is to make the line fit so that it is predictive and doesn't just force a theory where it doesn't belong. So there's, there's a flexibility involved, and that's the difficulty in it. The same thing occurs in statistics. You could define 
a certain model and statistics that might be too strict and don't describe your data. And you end up with a model that doesn't predict the future. Or you may use data from a period in the past that isn't representative of what you think is going to happen in the future. It's all the same as statistics, but in statistics, you usually don't have the flexibility to twist your line into knots. And you do have that flexibility in machine learning. Excellent. I, I, I think that the, the, the point, I guess, is that when you overfit a, an algorithm or overfit uh, a system, you know, a systematic strategy, uh, the likelihood of replicating the past in the future becomes less likely. Um, you, you know, and I, I think this is part of the cynicism that arises with backtesting, you know, where, where it's like, you know, a resume, right? Never see a bad one. You've never seen a bad backtest <laughs> before. Um, but it doesn't really, inf it doesn't really inform the future properly. If, if, as you said, there's no theory, there isn't a provable, uh, or workable theory behind the, the system that you've created or the set of rules that you've created to, to create an outcome. Yeah. Well, I think there's an important distinction there. There are plenty of bad back right, tests. They just don't show them to anyone, right? They, they fail and then they never see the light of day, <laughs> right? Um, but if you do them right, they're bad yeah. all the time. Uh, but you raise another point that's very important uh, as well, that it's not just about only showing the good back tests. It's also about trying so often that you're bound to be lucky, right? And you should penalize your back tests yeah. to account for the luck. If you say, well, I did one back test and I'm a genius because it made a lot of money, might say, some people might say, yeah, you must be a genius. That's a great idea. But if you tell them, well, I did a million back tests and I showed you the one that worked, they're going to say, ah, you just got lucky. You did a million. What are the chances one's going to work, right? It's like 100%. So you really have to take that into account too. You shouldn't just be trying to game the system. You shouldn't use a back test as a research tool. It should be a testing tool, right? You should have a theory that makes sense, that is reasonable, it's interpretable, it's explainable, and then do the back test and say, am I right? Not just data mine with the back test. Then you're just going to end up with something that was lucky for the period that you used and is not going to work in the future. But if you came up with an idea and it makes sense and people say, oh yeah, that's a really great way to, to invest, how did it work in the past? Say, oh, well, it's not really that important, but I did a test and, and it looked pretty good. But the real reason why we should invest in it is because it makes sense. And, and that's the right way to do it. Yeah. And the, and the whole idea is to, is to remove not only the luck from the systematic program, but I mean, the, the factor of luck, because you don't, you know, you don't want to invest on the basis that we could be lucky. Um, and you also want to el eliminate as much of the human bias from your algorithm as well. Yeah, that, that's Correct? critical, I mean, it, uh, especially what Adam was talking about is relevant here. If you're uh, an unsophisticated investor that's learning new things and trying new things, you are very tempted to adjust on the fly and let your emotions take over and cause you to make the wrong decisions. It's not a zero-sum game. It's a negative-sum game. And the sum is very negative. All the rich Wall Street firms and the big buildings and the insurance companies and all these people are taking your money from you. That's the negative sum. 
You've got to outsmart all those things that are working against you, which are fueled by your emotions. And uh, as, as Adam mentioned, if you are uh, a, an, a normal investor, uh, just a, a person trying new ideas, you're really tempted by those emotions. And being a quantitative systematic investor is, I think, the best way to guard against that, to think, wait a minute, is this violating my strategy? Is there really a good reason to do this? Or am I just nervous? I'm reminded right. of um, the story of Jim Simons from Rentec um, some years back. Here you've got a strategy that's compounded net of four and 40 fees at upwards of 30 odd percent a year for a couple of decades. And even Jim Simons, the CEO and founder of the firm, uh, has been known to put his finger on the scale from time to time when he perceives that there's a uh, a large risk that he doesn't want to that he doesn't want to take, um, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it, um, and just speaks to the fact that even quants are not infallible. You know, like um, it's uh, and there's a lot you cannot avoid adding your own assumptions and personalities, even if you employ the most rigorous advanced machine learning best practices, it's, there are still parameters and hyperparameters that, you know, and, and as you try to sort of um, be cognizant of the distribution of, of the variance that comes from, it changes in the hyperparameters, then other hyperparameters, you know, come about. So there's, there's lots of depth to this whole, um, this whole subject. Um, and I, I think we sort of covered the idea of backtesting really well. I think a lot of advisors are typically are, are going to be listening to this. And there are many advisors who I think do gravitate towards more of a quantitative systematic approach, but aren't steeped in quantitative methods themselves. They actually haven't, haven't um, had an opportunity to do some of the, the work to build these strategies. But they are approached by managers that have good backtests and have... Um, good stories and to describe their um, robust techniques. Do you have any thoughts on how to arm advisors with ways to tease out whether um, a manager that they're, that they're talking to who's proposing that they invest in a quantitative strategy um, may not be quite far along enough on their journey? And, and either let's assume that everybody's trying their best to be truthful and that they genuinely believe what they're what they're saying, but even those who are being truthful and are you know who believe what they're saying, just may not be far enough along on their journey to to know what they don't know yet. How can your average advisor do a better job of identifying those who are far enough along on their journey and who are probably proposing something to them that where the out of sample outcomes, if they after they invested it, may be likely to resemble what they've been shown versus the alternative. Yeah, you raised a lot of good points. Uh, I think something that is very important to keep in mind is that one of the amazing things about behavioral biases is that you can know about them and still not avoid them. Right, just knowing that they're there, even being guarded against them, <laughs> can't prevent you from committing them again. And uh, what's really interesting to me is that people like advisors who like to tell narratives, they like to tell stories, and they're 
are more often swayed by those stories than people who don't like to tell stories. They're systematically biased towards believing stories. That's why they like them so much. That's why they tell them and they're so convincing is because they convince themselves and they're also easily convinced by others. And that's exactly the biggest danger in these quantitative strategies into believing these stories and not being as critical as you should be. Uh, in fact, most advisors I met don't do any real performance attribution at all, not on the managers they hire or themselves. Maybe they look at a sharp ratio or a trailing five-year performance or something like that, but nothing like a, a Brinson attribution that describes whether they're good at picking certain asset classes or certain stocks or whether they're good in up markets or down markets. Uh, you know, they, they look at some statistics, they get a little confused, they create a little bit of a story, and that's where it stops. And, and that's fine because that's their business is to convince people to do things that they think are right, but they also have a blind spot for it. And to do a proper thorough analysis of whether these strategies are good over many different regimes and in many different ways it is something that really is necessary. And it's rare. Uh, a lot of times there's a good reason for it because there just isn't enough data to do it. They might only have a few years of monthly data where there might be a very large uh, beta component where it moves up and down with the market a lot and the active risk might be small in comparison, which makes it hard for you to analyze what's going on. Uh, but more often than not, uh, they get swayed by just good stories. And I think it's really important to not look at the stories and to look at the results. And also importantly, to look at a lot of other things that, has not, that have nothing to do with performance, right? The management team, how long have they been together? Are they likely to have an argument and split up? What are the terms? Do you have the best share class that you can have? Or can one share class make money while you lose money, right? Uh, there's like all sorts of different things that can affect whether your particular investment will perform that are even divorced from the strategy itself. Uh, the loads, uh, all sorts of things like that. So there's a lot that a good analysis involves that maybe a, a cursory meeting with the manager and having him smile at you and convince you that he's smart doesn't. And that's a whole skill and art in itself. What about qualitative factors, Michael, where you've got, for example, um, questions like, how much of the manager's own wealth is invested in his own strategies? <laughs> or, um, you know, do you run any other funds alongside this strategy? Who do you run them for? What are those strategies? Are they likely to uh, trade against the strategy that I'm investing in? What's, you know, what's coming to mind in that respect is what was recently announced from Two Sigma, where, where we, um, nice. yeah. we discovered <laughs> that they have been running several funds and and one of the funds had been, had been profiting quite dramatically off trading against the other funds uh, in a lot of the time, right? So, That's I mean, crazy. are there any qualitative um, or let's say non-quantitative questions or um, qualities that, in, that advisors or investors might want to inquire about um, alongside the more quantitative methodology? 
Yeah, there's a lot packed into that question. And very much the qualitative things that you mentioned are far more important than the quantitative things. If you're investing your money with a crook, it doesn't matter how good their strategy is, right? If they have a trader who's using inside information to benefit at your expense, that's much more important than the strategy, right? So yeah, certainly the qualitative things matter. They might be nuanced. There might be a very good reason why they don't have their own money in the fund. Uh, different fund strategies are right for different people. And maybe the strategy that works for mom and pop is not useful for the billionaire who runs the fund. That's certainly possible, but it's something to examine. Uh, it's also important to examine uh, their track record with other funds, how spread out they are. Uh, nowadays, it's distressing when you look up the biography of a, a CEO of a fund and you find out they tried to start 100 hedge funds in the last 10 years. Uh, they're just trying to start a fund. All they want to do is be a CEO, that they're not really interested in a strategy or even investing itself, but are interested in being an important person, right? It, are they... I hate the word, but you know, passionate about investing, right? Do they are they gonna stay up all night worrying about a little nuance that could be important or not, just because it eats away at them and they're that driven to provide investment performance? That's really what you need. The strategy itself is very much secondary to those things. And a lot of times it, it comes down to a gut feeling. It comes down to meeting them and talking to them and hopefully not being deceived by them. Yeah, there's, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, Michael, is, you know, how, how often do investors or allocators or advisors, for that matter, actually get to meet the person who is technically supporting the whole uh, activity of systematic investing? These, often there's there's other people in front of them, managing directors, you know, salespeople. Uh, <laughs> they're not they're not often they're they're not often talking to the the person who's doing the work, the heavy lifting. So I'm fortunate enough to be able to talk to these people, and perhaps that's a compelling reason to use an advisor or someone who has enough money under management by commingling uh, the client money so that they can get in front of these people and do a proper due diligence. Um, sometimes you can see them talk on, on video. Uh, there's a lot of podcasts. Uh, at the very least, almost all these funds have quarterly performance letters where they give you a little insight into uh, how they're thinking, or at least they, they try to. Um, but yeah, that, that's a big problem. And a lot of people have, uh, interestingly enough, used quantitative methods to try to do that. I'm not quite sure it works. Uh, a good friend of mine is a professional manager and, uh, a long time ago he told me, yeah, you can be on an earnings call, but if you're in the room, you can see the facial expressions, you get a different opinion than you do if you're just listening to the transcript. Uh, or reading the transcript. Uh, so there probably is a, a lot of benefit to that. Uh, whether it's worth another layer of fees for a fund of funds, 
that that kind of depends. Uh, but if you have like a flat fee, uh, low fee investment advisor who does have uh, the gravitas to get in front of these managers, or at least to hire a company that does get in front of the managers and write a report. Uh, I don't want to promote anyone, but uh, I used to use Alborn Partners. They used to write reports on investment managers. They were excellent. The reports were amazing, very detailed and insightful, uh, but expensive. And uh, if you can be a client of a firm that can afford a service like that or one of their competitors, it might give you a real advantage over others. You know, it's um, that's that's an age-old quandary where, you know, a lot of the a lot of the um, investment decision makers and the the people that are closest to the metal on the research teams at uh, at quantitative companies, especially, end up having very quirky personalities. You know, there's there's often I'm not going to say that there's a inverse relationship between analytical intelligence and sort of charisma or personal ability, but there's definitely not a one-to-one -one correlation, right? Um, and so, you know, it, it, people who are not analytically oriented or not steeped in quantitative methods may end up getting actually the, the, the wrong kind of information from, from meeting with the, the people on the team that are actually closest to the research and closest to the decision making. You know, people tend to want to make this, to, to decide to invest with people that they know and like and, and have an emotional connection with. And oftentimes it's hard to, to find the really, you know, the really smart guy, analytical guy who's, who's designed all this. They're not usually the warm fuzzy ones that, that people want to invest with. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these, be careful what you ask for. I, I agree it's nice <laughs> to have an intermediary who's used to dealing with those kinds of quirky personalities and knows how to ask the right questions and knows how to poke and prod, um, doing some of the homework for you before you um, make these kinds of decisions. I think that that could be very beneficial. Yeah, yeah that, that's I, a very I good agree, point. Adam. I think <laughs> I agree with what you just said. Yeah, if, yeah. If, that, if you that, stop and think point. about it, I mean, the the the. the 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 analytical person, the person who's actually behind the you know the technical expert behind the uh, the management, this you know the system, the program, uh, might actually talk you out of it. <laughs> Just because Absolutely. you know they, they tend to be very flat flat about the analysis and objective about the outcomes, right? It's As not just yeah, to... <laughs> and it's not just a charisma thing. It's also a yeah. um, you know people who are true domain experts understand there's an enormous amount of ambiguity. Somebody asks you a direct question, you're almost certainly not going to get a direct answer because there's a lot of if this, then that, if this, then that, yeah. you know, sometimes it's this, you know, we've investigated this. There's a lot of uncertainty over here. This is not something that the uh, potential <laughs> client wants to hear as they're trying to make a decision about what to invest in, right? So there's there's a lot of um, nuance about what, what the right approach is in terms of who to speak to at a, at a firm. You want the person who's going to give you the, uh, a realistic and um, um, well, uh, what's the word, calibrated answer to your questions without introducing complexity that's probably going to be unhelpful to the decision-making process. Yeah, that, that's 
That's good advice. And maybe on the barbell, the other side of the barbell, if you hire a professional, then they can ask those nitpicky questions and understand the answers. Right? So if you have a, an advisor with a research team who knows the questions to ask. So like when I'm interviewing quantitative people, I love to ask really detailed questions just because I'm interested in how they approach problems that nobody knows how to solve. Right? How do you handle missing data, things like that? There's not a right or a wrong answer, but people have their own methods that work for them in different ways uh, just because there's no ultimate solution. But I wouldn't expect uh, an average investor to even know what questions to ask, much less understand whether it's a relevant answer or not, or whether it's right for them or not. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there there's a big question, is it worth spending the money on a professional to help you because they're not cheap? Uh, and how do you do it without them? Which there's probably not a great answer to. Uh, maybe what you said, that maybe they should talk to the, the salespeople instead of the managers, is, is the right answer because the salespeople are good at explaining what this highly quantitative, uh, not very easy to talk to person would have said if they had that charismatic filter. Um, so yeah, there, there might be a good reason to speak to a salesperson if, yeah. if you're not a, a professional manager analyst. Yeah, and, and the professional that you're talking about, the professional salesperson, uh, maybe the word salesperson is, is you know, puts a negative tilt on on the whole thing. But if you're talking about an advisor, then perhaps it's the advisor's job, the professional advisor to mediate that conversation rather than just say, okay, here, let's talk to the quant uh, directly and, you know, let let that conversation happen unfiltered. Or, you know, why don't you give me your questions and I will put them to the quant and and then get back to you with the the calibrated answer. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Even if uh, right. the client thinks that they know uh, enough to filter out the answer, it's often not true. Uh, I once had a client who I think he was a volatility trader before he retired, and he sounded like he was really sophisticated and he understood a lot of things. But when I tried to explain to him some quantitative strategies, it was clear he didn't understand. And so uh, a lot of people overestimate their ability as well. So even if you do have a client that wants to speak to a manager, it's probably good to have someone else in the room as well to make sure they're hearing what the manager's saying. That's a really, really good point. You know, it, the um, more analytical people can, can sometimes be their own worst enemy, I find. Um, and you, it's, it's, it's sometimes a little bit easy for very analytical people to um, extrapolate their specific domain knowledge onto other fields. And, and, you know, so, you know, you might have an engineer who's extremely well-versed in differential calculus um, and, you know, met fluid dynamics and, and uh, nonlinear dynamics, et cetera. But there are other dimensions of the problem in the investment space. Um, yeah, those analytical tools often do um, come into play, but there are other technical facets and sources of ambiguity that um, you, you need a very deep understanding of as well. So just sort of assuming that you, because you've got a very deep quantitative background from another field, it's tempting to think that you're gonna be well-suited to 
evaluate a quantitative strategy. And probably you're, in some ways, you're better suited than someone who doesn't have a background in a technical field. In other ways, there's a, there's a strange handicap there because maybe you're a little bit overconfident and maybe you're not receptive to the, the areas that you're less adept in, right? So there's, I think all of these things kind of come into play and make this a, a challenging exercise. Yeah, yeah, I agree, especially in for technical people. I think the way a lot of technical people think is when they hear something, they try to translate it into the jargon that they're used to thinking about because their thoughts are structured by the language they use to describe their problems, right? And so uh, a statistician hearing a machine learning problem will try to translate it into uh, a high bias, low variance problem. You know, let's see what the economy is going to do over the next 20 years with large populations, for instance. And then maybe the machine learning guy is just talking about the next microsecond and, you know, a population of 5,000 that occurs in a nanosecond, right? And when the statistician translates what the machine learning person is saying into his own language, it loses the nuance that's very relevant to the problem. Or if uh, a physicist who's used to statistical mechanics thinks about, say, Monte Carlo analysis or the Black-Scholes equation as being a statistical phenomenon, about, say, heat transfer or neutrons moving through a reactor, well, prices aren't at all like that, right? Prices are people's opinions that trend and are swayed and they're adaptive and expected. Uh, and they're not atoms and they're not random. So, yeah, if you get somebody who's really an expert at a particular field, they might not be hearing what you're saying. There may be that translation. Uh, problem. Whereas if you speak to a layperson, they might actually understand better because at least they're trying to understand what you're saying and not trying to hear it in their own voice. So absolutely, there is two sides to the problem of, of getting a professional to look at another professional. Well said. So Michael, what, what strategies do you recommend for avoiding biases in market and asset allocation when developing quantitative trading strategies? Well, I think it's pretty hard, right? As Adam said, uh, there's so many decisions that people make either unthinkingly or on purpose with uh, the parameters they use in their functions, or uh, as you said, the hyperparameters, which are just the parameters of the model that uses another model. So if it's abstracted by one degree, uh, then the parameter of the model that that uses another model is the hyperparameter. Right? And, as something as simple as deciding what you mean by you want your strategy to make money can have a lot of bias in it, right? It may sound like a simple thing. Oh, I want a strategy that makes money. But does that mean you want your one month rolling returns to be positive or your yearly returns? Or do you want your average return? Do you want less tail risk? Do you want less daily risk? Uh, do you want uh, a triple barrier method, meaning uh, you d determine how much money your process makes over a period of time, but if it makes a lot of money, you get out of the trade because you made so much money, you're not going to risk losing it and also stop your losses if you lose too much money. It, even the idea of defining what you mean by making money is very nuanced and you really have to think about it. 
uh, it's easy to take those things for granted. And one of the most common mistakes I see in making models is just not think about the question long enough before you start answering it. And then you go and answer a question that might not even be relevant. Uh, another good example is if, if you're shorting stocks or, or any other investment, a lot of times you can't just short anything you want. And if you do short something, a lot of times you can't hold on to the short while it's making money. It gets called back. So you might backtest a strategy that says, oh, I can be short this asset. And you know, in this past history, it made so much money. And even if that repeats, the bank will call back the asset and then you won't make the money you expected to make, but you will take all the losses from the longs that you calculated. And you'll end up losing a lot more money than you thought and not making the money you thought you would. So really being critical about what you're doing and really thinking about whether it makes sense and why those answers uh, are the ones you chose, it's difficult, but that's kind of the art in it. Uh, one workaround is just to try a lot of things and hope that you'll stumble on something that you didn't think about. Uh, so for instance, uh, something called a grid search, where you just try different parameters, you try as many different possibilities as you can, and importantly, you don't pick where you think those possibilities will be, because your choices may be wrong. Right? You just try all sorts of random choices in your parameters and see if something interesting happens. And you might come up with a backtest that loses a ton of money. You might say, oh, is that a fluke? Did I do something wrong? Or did I uncover something that I didn't think to ask about? Let's try to find out if that's something I overlooked or not. And that's a good way to try to uncover things that maybe you are too biased to think about in the first place. Michael, from a rubber hits the road standpoint, before we, um, we move to the denouement of this conversation. Um, do you have any thoughts on what type of you know, high capacity, um, reasonably liquid quantitative strategies um, probably make sense as high value complements to many more traditional portfolios of stocks and bonds? Um, any particular kinds of strategies come to mind that many investors overlook, but that are generally widely available and, um, and, and probably would add value? Yeah, yeah, that's a big theme in my book and what I talk about in general. Uh, I started out as an arbitrageur, uh, very specialized uh, types of trades, and they're not necessarily hard to be a part of, and they're not necessarily esoteric either. They're just greatly overlooked. Most people dive into the larger stocks, the more liquid stocks, maybe some commodities, and just don't bother to look at all the other things that are available to them. There are literally tens of thousands or more different types of investments you could make, even as a small investor. And most of those are overlooked by most small investors. And you may uncover something that a lot of other people aren't interested in, or if some really sophisticated people are interested in them, maybe there's not enough money in it for them. So for instance, one of the first trades I did on Wall Street was called the basis trade. It was buying futures and selling the underlying security or vice versa. And it's a very liquid trade, but it's also pretty uncommon. 
And a lot of times I was able to enter this trade because my competitors were much larger than me and they just weren't interested in bothering with it. There wasn't enough money in it for them. If I made $10 million in the trade, their minimum profit was $100 million or else it wasn't worth their time. They had bigger fish to fry. And the same may be true in other trades. Uh, or maybe some big companies are so interested in investing in so many different things and being so diversified that they overlook the nuances. Uh, a really famous story was uh, the one about the Credit Suisse uh, 81 bonds, right? There was a clause in there. They told you that what happened could happen. And a lot of people either ignored it or they were investing in so many things they didn't bother to read it. And an individual investor who had enough time to really research his trades might have read that bond and say, hey, wait a minute, something bad may happen. And then compare it to some of the other AT1s and say, these other bonds don't have the same clause. Maybe there's a reason why this one has the clause and the other ones don't. Maybe they'll actually do that thing. And that might have been a great trade for them. Uh, I have a friend who was trading SPACs before SPACs were you know, the, the popular trade it was a few years ago. And he stopped trading SPACs when they became popular because they violated his idea of what a good trade was. He was in it for some low risk, easy money and a free option. And when it became a speculative trade, that was exactly the opposite thing that he wanted. And I think there's a lot of opportunities like those for individual investors. There are a lot of people that are professional investors that just have, they have too many things to do. They don't have enough time to take the time you take if it were your own money. And that brings up a lot of opportunities. And as you mentioned, Adam, they're not all in Apple. There's, there's, so many other things that you can investigate and take advantage of that either people aren't looking at or there's enough opportunity in there for everyone because there just isn't everybody piling into them. And uh, I have a whole chapter in my book that just tries to open people's eyes into just a, a small fraction of just so many interesting things. Uh, even when I was learning to trade sovereign bonds, which is about the most liquid asset class you can find, just looking at the different ways they calculate interest based on how they calculate days, whether a month counts as 30 days or use the actual days in the month, uh, what holidays are used. There's so many little details that can make a big difference that there's just tremendous opportunity. Uh, now it's probably less common because computers are able to look at so many different rules uh, so thoroughly. But when I started trading, people made mistakes like that all the time. They calculated the number of days differently. They ignored the fact that an interest payment would occur on a weekend. So you'd actually get it a day later. So it'd be worth that much less because you had to wait a day later to get the same amount that you could have been earning interest on. Uh, so many little details you could take advantage of as a small investor. And it's a lot of fun and it adds value. It's a way to actually make money that doesn't rely on risk and randomness. It relies on you actually just doing the work and getting it done, which a lot of people overlook. There's so much randomness in the market that it's tempting to say, well, it doesn't matter how much work I do because it's going to be random anyway and I have to be lucky. And it's not true. If you do the hard work enough times, you're much more likely to be successful. 
And if you just roll the dice enough times, you're much more likely to lose all your money because it is a negative sum game. Michael, it's it's uh, you know listening to you, it's pretty it's pretty clear that that you that you love this subject, <laughs> and I, I say that in the in the kindest way because I think I think I think advisors listening to this should really pick up a copy of your book uh, because it does provide a bridge across that knowledge gap that exists between those who know technically about systematic investing and those who are, you know, the allocators, uh, and I mean specifically the advisors that we reach, reading your book could actually do a great deal for them in terms of filling that, filling in some of those empty spaces, some of those gaps in their knowledge that would inform their conversations better with the, uh, the companies that are talking to them about getting on their shelves. And um, so it's an amazing book. I, I uh, recommend, you know, I definitely recommend advisors, anybody who's interested, but especially advisors since they're allocating client money um, to, to read. And uh, w Michael, where can, where can uh, advisors find your book? It's everywhere <laughs> books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, McGraw-Hill's website, uh, and in, right. in many bookstores as well. Uh, you can go to my website, quantitativeassetmanagement.com, and there I have uh, code and some data that your analysts can use to do the things that are in my book. If you read the book and say, oh, I wish my guys were doing this too. Uh, and importantly, uh, it'll expand your horizons because a lot of times you you read the same stories, you're, you're part of that fire hose of the media, and you lose track of just all the other ways you can add value to your clients besides just the normal things you hear about. And that's really how you can differentiate yourself from other advisors to not invest in the same things everybody else is investing in, but to find your own niche where you can succeed and shine. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Very informative, as usual. Really enjoyed it. I think um, yeah. this will be a high-value episode. Thanks. It Michael, was a pleasure. Uh, an honor to have you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I hope you'll invite me back soon. <laughs>